Not only does this passage fall chronologically during Sukkot, but it is also thematically connected because Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John 9, 5. This echoes John 8, 12, which happened during the Sukkot light ceremony. As a result, the imagery and symbolism of light connect significantly to the Feast of Tabernacles, and this sheds a key insight to Jesus' words and actions in this passage. Light symbolizes God's salvation in the Old Testament, and Israel's prophesied Messiah was expected to be a light for all peoples. Light is essential to see, both physically and spiritually, which Jesus demonstrates as he heals the blind man. Welcome to Mountains and Mustard Seeds. I am your host, Erica Kambitz, and I'm excited to engage with you as we experience God together in fresh ways. All right, my friends, welcome back. Happy New Year to you. I'm really excited to be getting into some more in-depth Bible study and just wanted to give you a taste of what is to come uh, in the future of Mountains and Mustard Seeds. I really have a strong desire to do really in-depth Bible studies, and I think that there's tons of written content out there, but there's not lots of podcast content. And so my hope would be that I could be working on podcast content and written content that you could follow along together. Um, Maybe that's a long-term dream, but for the time being, I would just love to go through passages of scripture together, looking at the historical context, looking at the literary context, maybe looking at some keywords or doing a word study, and then looking at what our application is for today as well. Uh, my hope is to incorporate Lectio Divina into this process, and my hope behind that is that you are working through the process of studying scripture with me. My hope is never simply to tell you what the Bible says, but really to teach you how to study it yourself as well. I think that this is a tool every Christian should have, regardless of education, regardless of your experience in life. And I think that the more we work through this together and the more you understand the process, the easier it will become and the more readily you can do it yourselves as well. So um, so each week, my hope is that we will start with a lectio of the passage, maybe of some corresponding passages, so that you are really steeping yourself in the scripture instead of just coming into it blind. And my hope is that when I talk about things they resonate more deeply with you because you too have studied the scripture. And maybe you don't have all the resources that I have, but my hope is that as God is working in our hearts and as the Holy Spirit is talking to us through the text, these things don't just feel like they're coming out of left field, but they really hit you on a deeper level because you too have looked at the scripture yourself. So today we are looking at John 9, verses 1 through 7. This is kind of a standalone study to give you guys an example of what this can look like in the future, and my hope is that we will be doing entire books of the Bible. Just to provide a helpful guideline or roadmap for you, each time I will introduce the scripture again after you have hopefully done the Lectio Divina portion, and then we'll have one, two, maybe three separate podcasts just to help break it up for you guys a little bit. It can be a lot to digest and 
My hope is to introduce some new information, either with the socio-historical context or the literary context, but then also tease out what the implications are for that. So you're learning things, but then you're also applying it and asking, how does this impact how we read the text and providing discussion or reflection questions for you as you learn those things too. So for this specific podcast, I will read through the passage of scripture, and then we are going to discuss some important socio-historical background that really helps to open up the text and help us to understand more of what Jesus was saying, what his disciples understood, why this passage is so powerful, and then we'll have some discussion questions to follow that. So without further ado, let's dig in. John 9, verses 1 through 7. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. John 9, 1 through 7 sits at a really interesting place in the Gospel of John, but also in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 9 is included in a section of the Gospel of John, and many scholars reference this uh, as the book of signs. This is where Jesus demonstrates that he is Israel's Messiah. Within that portion of Scripture, John 7 through the end of 10 is a unique portion where Jesus visits Jerusalem and he faces mounting oppression from the Jewish Jewish religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. The healing of the blind man is Jesus' last recorded miracle before the Jews outright reject him in chapter 10. This leads to a full-scale investigation of the healing by the Pharisees, And one could say that this this healing of the blind man was the straw that broke the camel's back for the Pharisees. Ultimately, in John 9, 1 through 7, Jesus uses the healing of the blind man to reveal his identity as Messiah. So you have already looked at this passage yourself, doing Lectio Divina through it. And now we're going to turn and look at the socio-historical context What does history have to share with us? What does sociology have to share with us so that we have a a more colorful view of the text and maybe some things are explained a little bit more in detail that are lost on us today in our modern Western context? So the first thing we're going to look at is the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, is an important backdrop for this passage. If you're interested in reading more about the Feast of Tabernacles, You can look at Leviticus 23, verses 34 through 43, 
and Numbers 29, 12 through 39. Israel celebrated Sukkot to remember God's deliverance from Egypt and how Yahweh provided for Israel as she dwelt in temporary shelters in the desert. The Israelites would construct these tabernacles or booths as a part of this celebration, and the priests would perform special sacrifices at the temple. It's important to note that light and water were key symbolic aspects of these ceremonies at the temple. One scholar says that on the first day of the feast, four large lampstands were lit. The lights were so bright that the court was visible to the whole city of Jerusalem. These lights symbolize the pillar of fire that Yahweh provided to deliver Israel out of Egypt. You can read about that in Exodus 13, 21 through 22. And the symbolism of water is in connection with the waters of Siloam, which will be discussed a little bit later in the word study of the word sent. So these components, the light and the water and the dwelling in temporary shelters, reminded the Israelites of God's ultimate provision of salvation, both physically and spiritually. So how does this impact our understanding of the text? John indicates that Jesus joined his disciples in Jerusalem midway through Sukkot. That's mentioned in John 7, 14. And it's likely that the healing of the blind man occurred on the Sabbath immediately following Sukkot. Even though the text does not explicitly state where Jesus and the disciples are, the end of John 8 indicates that Jesus has just left the temple in Jerusalem when he passes the blind man. Not only does this passage fall chronologically during Sukkot, but it is also thematically connected because Jesus says, I am the light of the world in John 9, 5. This echoes John 8, 12, which happened during the Sukkot light ceremony. As a result, the imagery and symbolism of light connect significantly to the Feast of Tabernacles, and this sheds a key insight to Jesus' words and actions in this passage. Light symbolizes God's salvation in the Old Testament, and Israel's prophesied Messiah was expected to be a light for all peoples. You can read about that in Isaiah 42.6 and 49.6. Light is essential to see both physically and spiritually, which Jesus demonstrates as he heals the blind man. So here are some questions for reflection. What tangible reminders do you have of God's provision of salvation in your own life? What tangible reminders do you have of God's provision of salvation in your own life?
The next question for reflection, how often do you celebrate your own salvation? How often do you celebrate your own salvation? And the final question for reflection over this portion, how is Jesus trying to reveal himself to you in your own context? How is Jesus trying to reveal himself to you in your own context? The next aspect that we will be looking at in this particular passage is the ancient concept of sin and suffering. In this passage, the disciples reveal an interesting idea from their day. They believed that suffering was a direct result of sin. This ideological concept essentially held that sin and suffering were intimately connected and that a specific illness or experience of suffering was the direct consequence of a specific sin. This view was not limited to the disciples. Other extra-biblical ancient Near Eastern literature and rabbinic commentaries tell us that this was a commonly held belief. So it was widely accepted in its time and the region of the world. So what this means then when Jesus essentially says no to his disciples in verse 3, This was revolutionary for the time. Jesus tells the disciples that this man's blindness has nothing to do with sin, but instead so that God's works might be revealed. So knowing this, how does this impact our understanding of the text? Since scripture was not written in a vacuum, it's important to recognize the cultural ideologies that are imported to the text. These influences are neither bad nor good, but ignoring them disembodies the text from its source, 
and then we tend to lose the human fingerprints as a result. By understanding the beliefs at the time and the the significance of those beliefs, we can better understand how Jesus dismantled preconceived ideas that were deeply ingrained in the lives of those who followed him. Jesus longs to reveal himself to the world. And part of that revelation includes shaking up all of our set categories of understanding. Your first question for reflection upon this is, what are some cultural ideologies that might be influencing your particular ministry? An example of this could be, if I only had more money or time or resources. Or another example might be things like individualism or civil liberties. These are cultural ideologies that might be influencing your ministry. Take a moment to either write these down on a list or think through all of them in your own heart. What are some cultural ideologies that might be influencing your own ministry? Now I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer, focusing on one of those things that keeps coming to mind, and ask Jesus what he thinks of it. How is God trying to shake up your own preconceived ideas? Spend some time in prayer considering this. That's all for today's episode. Tune in next time where we will look at the literary context and how that changes how we read this passage and how we apply it to our lives. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord look upon you with his favor and be gracious unto you and give you peace. Thank you for listening. I would love to connect with you personally and hear about your own experience or how the podcast has impacted your faith, please reach out to me at askerica.podcast at gmail.com.